welcome to the all-new, all-inclusive Shoot This Now podcast. My name is Tim Malloy. My name is Matt Donnelly. Matt Donnelly, what do we do every week on the Shoot This Now podcast? Oh my God, we like find appropriate clothing for our body types. We reunite children and their families. But mostly we talk about ideas we think should be adapted for film or television. And this week we have an amazing one. We talked to the author of the new book, Bruce Lee, Matthew Polly. He was rad. Amazing. He is so smart and also not uh, not very performative of that. He's a Rhodes Scholar and we wouldn't even know it if we hadn't Googled him. Yeah, he didn't mention in our interview that he is a Rhodes Scholar and is himself a martial arts master, which... So is- secure. A level of humility I do not possess. So I actually kind of don't trust it. God bless him. I trust his book <laughs> because it is meticulously researched, as he'll talk about. Um, it is such a good story. One of the rules on Shoot This Now is we don't talk about properties that have already been developed into films. Mm-hmm. Um, we wouldn't look that smart if we were like, this should be a movie, and then it was already being made into a movie. There have been movies about Bruce Lee before. There have. There have. Recently, too. But this one, this book is different than all of the others for reasons mm-hmm. that we will get into. This is much more meticulously explained, and some of the stories that have become legend will be presented in our film as truth. And fact-checked. Rigorously fact-checked. Yes. Um, one thing we'd like to ask you, mm-hmm. we have been looking at our analytics, and we've noticed that a lot of people listen to this podcast at their desktops. Thank you so much, by the way. We love that. However. We would love it if you would listen to us on your phones. Mm-hmm. Take us with you. It's like Beyonce says, if you want me, you can watch me on your video phone. Okay, that's a little sexual, but here's the thing. I think if it's true. You, if you take us and share us, with, like, if you love to talk about film intelligence with your friends, just show them your phone, tweet it, listen to it on your little AirPods that you You're, can even put on your watch if you want. You're out somewhere, you recite some fact about Bruce Lee, and they go, where did you hear that? And you're like, oh, I heard it on this podcast. Can you send me the podcast? Yes, I can. Take sure out can. your phone. Sure can. Take out your phone and share it. So join us now as we talk with Matthew Polly, author of the awesome book, Bruce Lee. Tiger style. I think people think of kung fu movies as like genre films, but I can't think of one person who doesn't smile or get interested as soon as you say Bruce Lee. Yeah, I mean, I think the the amazing thing about him is that he's just got universal appeal. Um, you can't go, there's no continent you can go to where you show a picture of him and they don't know who he is, even if they haven't seen his movies. So he's become some sort of almost demigod as opposed to just a celebrity. Why do you think when he has so much charisma and innate appeal, no one's made a good movie about him? You mentioned that when you started this book, no one had even written a great biography of him. Uh, I think the the great biography to me was fascinating. I think part of it is because as an Asian American male, um, that's probably the most ignored group in uh, Western media. Um, Any white guy who does anything gets a biography and any black guy that white people know gets a biography. But uh, (laughs) but Asian guys don't get, you know, Chairman Mao. Like there's 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 probably two Chinese guys that everybody knows. Uh, and so I think that's the big part. And then the other issue is um, Kung Fu is considered kind of lowbrow. And maybe that explains the lack of a great movie as well? I think so. I mean, in 1993, the movie Dragon came out, which was the biopic. Um, and so I think people have been trying to make another one. Um, that movie was, you know, it was very sort of a blockbuster era. I felt like instead of cha-cha dancing, uh, Bruce Lee should be uh, 
dirty dancing. <laughs> like <laughs> nobody put Linda in the corner. Uh, Linda Lee being his wife. Exactly, Linda Lee being his <laughs> wife. Because it was it was it was a romantic love story. They turned his sort of it, his whole adventure into a romantic love story, which is one way to go. And it wasn't the worst <laughs> biopic ever done. Um, but but Bruce Lee, I think, deserves a proper movie. Do you think if he were alive and popular now, he would have become sort of the global celebrity entity that people like Dwayne Johnson or someone like Jennifer Lopez have become? In like the template of modern celebrity, he'd probably have a fragrance, a sitcom. So he was planning that uh, the day he died. He wrote a letter to his um, lawyers planning a Hanna-Barbera animated series, a clothing wow. line. So even back then, he had that thing. I, I, I've always argued that if he had been born later he would have been a rapper. Uh, he could have been in the Wu-Tang Clan because he, he, uh, he kind of had a swagger and a sense of wit and also a braggadocio that uh, was unique to sort of the Asian male persona. And so I think one of the reasons like the Wu-Tang Clan and Larissa and these guys love him is because they saw something familiar, this kind of macho yeah. swagger guy to him. And it's so universal, I think, because... Sometimes you have to explain things without words. And when you look at him as small as he is fighting, for example, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which is a video on YouTube I highly recommend, he's literally twice as big as Bruce Lee. And you are going to root for the underdog no matter what. And when you realize the underdog is a complete disciplined ass kicker, that's just a great story in itself. Exactly. It, the, uh, in fact, he, he joked uh, he, during those kicks where he's trying to kick Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the head, he pulled his groin trying to get up to seven foot four. He, uh, he uh, you know, what's interesting about Bruce and I think why he has such appeal is, you know, he was born a skinny, scrawny kid. He almost died of cholera. Um, by the time he was four, he still couldn't walk properly. One leg was shorter than the other. And so he, he wasn't anyone you thought would be a, a dedicated ass kicker. He did it through kind of sheer force of will. And that's uh, why I think he's appealing, because everybody can imagine, if I just trained as hard as Bruce Lee, I could be that badass. Is that true? I mean, could any of us have become Bruce Lee, or is there something innate about Bruce Lee? Um, I don't think any of us could be quite as good as Bruce Lee. I mean, his physicality is something you could do through training. Uh, you know, the, those muscles are basically training for eight, 10 years straight and then reducing his body fat to 1%. So if you were that insane, you could have Bruce Lee's body. But he did have certain uh, aspects that, you know, like Baryshnikov, he had a sense of timing and rhythm. And uh, uh, one of his girlfriends said he was a kinetic genius. He could just look Ooh. at a move and sort of incorporate it. Um, and so when he came to the States, one of the things he, he, because he was a dancer, he wanted to learn how to get funky. He would go to clubs. He was from Hong Kong. He'd never met any African-Americans and he would go to clubs where they were at and watch how they walked and how they danced. And he, she said he would incorporate that into his own swagger. That feels like one potential way to tell the story, Bruce Lee. The one way is to tell the entire life story, which would take forever since this is like a 600 page book and goes back two generations before he was born. And the other is to pick like a small piece of it. And I feel like a good piece might be Bruce Lee really broke the color line for American martial arts. He was discouraged from teaching African-Americans and he really had to fight a martial arts master for the right to teach African-Americans. So that story is a bit of a legend, but what it is absolutely true. His first student was Jesse Clover, who was an African-American and Jesse had gone around trying to find other Kung Fu masters and none of them would teach him. 
And so when Bruce took him on as a student, he was criticized by his boss, Ruby Chow, in whose restaurant he worked as a busboy. Um, she said, you, you can't teach black people Kung Fu. They'll use it to beat us up. And he said, they can beat, and he said, they can beat us up already. At least they'll respect us if they know about our culture. <laughs> so he was criticized. He had the most diverse group of students of any Kung Fu master. He taught people of all ethnicities and style and, uh, races. Um, and then later on when he was in Oakland, that was one of the criticisms against him. And this led to a challenge fight he had against uh, Wong Jack Man, which was part of this movie, Birth of the Dragon, just recently. That makes me want to cry. That makes me actually weepy. This is the legendary fight, right, where no one could decide who actually won? Yes. <laughs> and so I, I ended up researching it, uh, and I talked to one of Wong Jack Man's friends, and he said, yeah, Bruce Lee won. So I, I took that as a pretty good sign. <laughs> So we could do this as a two-hour movie with him arriving in the United States, him wanting to get funky, his making black friends, taking on an African-American student, his getting criticism from within his community, and then we get to end it in a fight. Yeah. That is maybe the most legendary Bruce Lee fight. Exactly. And it would tell that fight uh, in the right way, which is um, actually Bruce overwhelmed him and Wong Jack Man turned and ran. And so he was Bruce was chasing him around the room, punching at the back oh. of his head. As Wong Jack Man was running. And then one thing that's never come up before, but before the fight, Wong Jack Man strapped on um, leather bracelets with metal spikes and hid them hid them under his sleeves. And and at one moment he as he was running away, he he whirled back around and struck Bruce in the neck with these metal spiked bracelets. And Bruce felt the blood, realized the deception, became became enraged and essentially tackled Wong Jack Man and was punching him, and then they broke up the fight. <laughs> so that's actually what really happened, according to the people who were there. You're sure that's not just a 70s accessory he had on? It could have been. It could have <laughs> been just the, like, power bracelet. <laughs> it's a Halston bracelet. Usually making movies of fights, the problem is that you have to cut a half-hour fight down to seven minutes. Yeah. And in this one, you might have to turn, like, a two-minute fight into seven minutes. <laughs> that's right. It, the whole thing lasted three minutes. Yeah. That's a pretty good length for a movie fight with maybe like a flashback in the middle. That's the problem with movie fights. You spend 90 minutes talking about it and then seven minutes actually fighting. <laughs> it seems like Wong Jack Man is kind of the de facto villain of our story. He, he is, although um, he was he actually was talked into this. I think this makes him a more interesting character. Um, he got uh, <clears throat> he'd just come off the boat from Hong Kong. He was working as a waiter. And he wanted to start his own kung fu school. And so somebody who wanted to take Bruce Lee down told Wong Jack Man, if you beat Bruce Lee, you'll have enough notoriety to open your own school. So it wasn't out of cruelty, but actually a certain immigrant ambition that he took on this fight. Just to give people a sense of how well-researched this book is, it's absolutely incredible to me that there's, there's one passage in particular that really details how deep you dug. At one point, you have Bruce Lee's father... He has a job sort of singing the menu at a Chinese restaurant, and that leads to him becoming an opera singer. Can we get you to read that part? Sure. Let me get it for me. And while we're looking, your book has in the opening flap the picture of him fighting. Is this him fighting Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? That's right. In the yellow suit, which clearly inspired Uma Thurman's suit in Kill Bill. That's right. That's where, that's where Quentin took it from. And Bruce Lee actually got that based on a uh, ski jumpsuit that Roman Polanski gave him when he was when he was skiing in Gestad, Switzerland. 
uh, during a kind of martial arts training trip. In Stad, no less. There's like seven movies in this book. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, so the first paragraph? Uh-huh. 10-year-old uh, <clears throat> uh, Lehoi Twin stood barefoot on the dirt road outside a corrugated tin roof restaurant on the outskirts of Foshan City in southern China. He wore threadbare clothes passed down to him from his three older brothers. As urban pedestrians wandered down the street, Hoi Chun sang out in Cantonese the restaurant specials of the days. Friends, countrymen, come, 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 and try our fresh stewed beef brisket, water spinach with fermented to tofu, frog legs on lotus leaves, congee with century egg, and sweet and sour pork. His tender voice rose up and down with each menu item, a dancing falsetto. Among the hundreds of peasant boys employed by restaurants across the city to hawk their menus, there was something special about the way Hoi Chun sang, a wry, ironic undercurrent. On this particular day, a famous Cantonese opera singer passed by the restaurant, heard the humor in the young boy's voice, and invited him to become his apprentice. Bruce Lee's father ran all the way back to his small village to tell his parents the good news. And so his entrance into show business leads Bruce Lee eventually into show business. What year did this take place? This was like 1914. God. You had to recreate something from 104 years ago. Can you talk about how much research went into that, telling us what was on the menu? Um, you know, it, it took seven years to do the research. Uh, I interviewed over 100 people. I spent uh, over six months in Hong Kong. I talked to his siblings. I translated books out of Chinese. Um, and so just recreating that scene was based on uh, a translation of Bruce's brother's book, an interview with his sister, and then looking into the kind of history of restaurants in Foshan in southern China. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at menus, what type of menus they were serving, because I don't know exactly what he was on the menu item that day at that restaurant, but this was the kind of food that they were serving. But I found fascinating this idea that they used young boys to just sing the, the menu items to try to hawk the things to bring customers in. And that, yeah. that was a, that, that image of him doing that. Uh, and that's his breakthrough. That's his discovery. And it parallels later on, Bruce Lee is giving a Kung Fu performance and he's discovered by Hollywood. And so that the, in many ways, this is a father and son story about, about their lives and how, how they paralleled and how Bruce Lee in many ways was trying to, always make his father proud, but also be a bigger man than his father. So obviously Quentin Tarantino is going back to the Bruce Lee well with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his next movie. At one point in the book, you say Roman Polanski believed Bruce Lee may have killed his wife, Sharon Tate, and several others in the murders that, of course, turned out to be the Manson murders. Yes. So that's, that's a story that um, uh, Polanski tells in his own biography. Uh, the police officers found at the crime scene a, a horn-rimmed glasses that they believed belonged to the killers, but they couldn't find the killers. And Polanski was convinced it was one of his friends, somebody in his circle, because he couldn't imagine some random person just murdered his wife and friends. Uh, and then he was a student of Bruce Lee's. Bruce Lee was teaching him Jeet Kune Do. And after the murder, they met many times because Polanski was terrified he'd be killed. So he was trying to improve his Kung Fu skills as if that would help. Um, and one day during a lesson, Bruce said, I, I lost my glasses. And at that moment, 
Polanski thought, my God, it could be Bruce Lee, because after all, Bruce Lee is an Asian, is kind of an outsider, he doesn't fit in, and he also has the physical ability to take out or take on multiple uh, people. Uh, and so Polanski says, oh, why don't I buy you a new pair? We'll, uh, we'll go to the store after the lesson. So they go to the store, Polanski's heart's racing the entire time because he thinks he's sitting next to the murderer of his wife. Polanski, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Bruce orders his glasses and the prescription is different than the one at the crime scene. And so Polan Polanski breathes this huge sigh of relief. He never tells Lee about it. <laughs> In fact, when I was interviewing Linda Lee, uh, she brought it up that she had never heard of it until she read Polanski's book. And that's why LEI Works is still open, because if they would have done this online with Warby Parker. <laughs> um, have you heard from Quentin Tarantino or from anyone in Hollywood about any portion of this book? Uh, so we've sent it, uh, we've talked to Quentin Tarantino's manager, and we sent a copy of the book to him, because he's, of course, doing this period of time, and he just cast somebody to play Bruce Lee in the movie. Um, so we're hopeful uh, that at least the book will play some part in influencing how that uh, movie comes out. Uh, I don't want to pivot here, but there's something that struck me as so funny, and it could be a different movie and maybe like a low-budget comedy, but Chuck Norris, his 45-year-old bitterness about always being less famous or legendary than Bruce Lee. I, I picture him at a, at a convention in Boise signing like Walker, Texas Ranger autographs, and then Bruce Lee comes on TV and like he just sees him from the corner of his eye. Um, but you do speak about Chuck in the book, right? He wouldn't talk because his, uh, I, I went tried his manager. I tried through friends. And his, one of his best friends said, Bob, uh, sorry, he said the, uh, Chuck Norris hates talking about Bruce Lee. <laughs> it drives him crazy that all these years later, um, whenever he goes for an interview, all they want to ask him about is Bruce Lee. Uh, and so it, I took that as, you know, he, he had unresolved feelings. Let's put it that way. Um, the other thing that I think that's funny about it is Way of the Dragon has that fight scene between Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris. It's the most famous yeah. fight scene ever. Uh, yeah. And Chuck Norris, before the film, asked Bruce, you know, what should I do for it? And Bruce said, you need to get bigger so you look more imposing and the fight scene works better. You need to Ooh. gain 30 pounds in the next eight weeks. Wow. So Chuck put on, started eating, but he didn't put on any muscle. And so he's a little fatter. One of his friends told me that Chuck Norris hates talking about that movie because he looks like a fat moose. <laughs> the other thing about that scene is Bruce Lee is completely hairless. And Chuck Norris is like the hairiest guy you've ever seen. Like truly epitome of 1970s hairy. And Bruce Lee at one point acknowledges that, I guess, by ripping a huge hunk of his chest hair off. Was the chest hair, it looks like Austin Powers' chest hair. Was it a Merkin? <laughs> Is it a Merkin? He, he had real chest hair, but when they pulled it off, they added some on. So when, when he's, he did that, they didn't actually pull his chest hair off. They did put Merkin on his chest for that scene. But Chuck Norris was genuinely a hairy dude. Um, and, and Bruce Lee was, of course, sleek. Uh, and, and so that sort of contrast, I think, was part of what he was playing to. But I, that scene to me is one of the funniest when he, when he rips off his chest hair, pulls it in his hand, and then blows it. Speaking of Bruce Lee's self-care and manscaping, his sleekness kind of adds to the efficiency of Bruce Lee's physicality. And glamour. And you found something fascinating. He had the sweat glands removed from under his arms, and that may have somehow contributed to his death. Huh. Hold on, that's something you can do? That's a possibility? Can I do that? 
<laughs> wow. Apparently, uh, this is something that was reported a long time ago and never, no one ever thought about it. Uh, we just assumed it was like, you know, some actors do vain things. <laughs> he got tired of uh, having his uh, armpits wiped down after every scene. Um, but as I explored sort of the cause of his death, it seemed more and more clear to me that he died of heat stroke uh, because it was the hottest day of the month and uh, he had been exerting himself and he was described afterwards as being dizzy and having a headache, which are both signs of potential heat stroke. Uh, And so then I remembered, oh my God, he had had his sweat glands removed a month before he collapsed and died. Uh, And so that seemed to me to be a pretty good uh, clue as to what might have caused his death. If we do this as a story of how Bruce Lee fought to integrate American Kung Fu, is there anyone you think can play Bruce Lee and anyone who can write and direct this movie? You should obviously write it. <laughs> I'd like Quentin write it. Um, uh, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, it's hard to find someone who captures his spirit. Um, I think uh, the guy who just played Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon, uh, sorry, Birth of the Dragon, uh, Philip uh, Nung, is actually pretty good. Like, I thought he captured his spirit pretty well. I don't know if he wants to play Bruce Lee the rest of his life, um, but I thought he was pretty good. It'd be interesting to think about who would be a good writer for this, though. One thing we talk about in the editing here at The Wrap is how to be more like Bruce Lee. I've heard a story that he would say it isn't about the extra thing that you do every day. It's the thing that you don't do. It's the one less thing that you eat. It's the one less indulgence that makes you lean and mean. And I sort of use it with writing to say, cut out as many words as you can. Don't send that G-chat that's going to start a fight. Who, me? Is that true? Like, did Bruce Lee give that advice or am I a big liar? So it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to say um, because uh, Bruce Lee's notebooks were filled with quotes that he wrote from other authors, but he never put their names down because it was his notebooks and it didn't matter. And then they published it after his death as all of his quotes. Um, and so there are, are a ton of Bruce Lee quotes on the web that are, you know, from St. Saint, Saint Augustine or Descartes <laughs> that people just didn't know it was him. I haven't heard that particular quote, but it could very well be that he said that. It sounds like something Bruce Lee would say. Maybe that's our movie, an editor who uses fake Bruce Lee quotes to motivate a ragtag group of journalists. <laughs> the fight at the end between Matt and I wouldn't be that good. <laughs> um, Matt, anything else? I know. I, I just love the idea of him as like a self-idealized brand engine, despite being a dedicated and awesome person with conviction who didn't care about color lines or culture lines, but really sort of like independently arrived at a model for modern celebrity. It makes him so modern and complex and smart, and it's so sad that he left us so early. You know, it's interesting because uh, when when he first came to the States, he gave up on the idea of acting. He had done 20 films as a child actor. He was kind of the Macaulay Culkin of Hong Kong. And so when he got here, he he looked around and saw that Asians, the only parts they played were houseboys or coolies on the railroads. And so he gave up the idea of acting in America and he decided he wanted to be the Ray Kroc of Kung Fu, that he would just, he would launch franchises. That was his dream as a college student. And so he had this real sense of salesmanship and marketing. Uh, and, and then when he became, uh, he did the Green Hornet but he afterwards he couldn't find any jobs, and that's when he became a Sifu to the stars, when he became Steve McQueen and James Coburn Sifu. <clears throat> and I think he, he knew that using some of the philosophy 
was a way to attract those kind of 1960s hippy dippy type white actor people. So I think he did every once in a while have a sense that he was he was playing a part. Um, I don't think he was he was he did have true convictions, but he also was self conscious about who he was. Do you have a title in mind for this? Um, it, it just has to be something that's not dragon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so not totally racist and predictable. <laughs> in fact, I, when I did the book, I said the I, I told them I want this to look exactly like John Wayne's biography. Oh, I don't God want bless you. Yeah, I, I don't want you anything that's like orientalized. I want it exactly like we would any sort of white celebrity, and so that's why we did the picture up close. 